0: Chapter Twenty Seven of *The Betrothed* by Alessandro Manzoni, translated by George William Fenshaw. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Twenty Seven. We have had occasion to mention more than once a war which was then fermenting for the succession to the states of the Duke Vincenzo Gonzaga, the second of the name we have said that at the death of this duke his nearest heir carlos gonzaga chief of a younger branch transplanted to france where he possessed the duchies of nevers and ratel had entered into possession of Mantua and montferrat the spanish minister who wished at any price to exclude from these two fiefs the new prince and wanted some pretence to advance for his exclusion had declared his intention to support the claims upon Mantua of another gonzaga ferrante prince of guastalla and those upon montferrat of carlos emanuel i duke of savoy and margarita gonzaga duchess dowager of lorraine don gonzalo who was descended from the great captain whose name he bore had already made war in flanders and as he was desirous beyond measure to direct one in italy he made the greatest efforts to promote it by interpreting the intentions and by going beyond the orders of the minister he had in the meantime with the duke of savoy concluded a treaty for the invasion and division of montferrat and easily obtained the ratification of it by the Count Duke, by persuading him that the acquisition of Casale, which was the point best defended of the portion granted to the King of Spain, was extremely easy. However, he still continued to protest, in the name of his sovereign, that he desired to occupy the country only as a trust until the decision of the Emperor should be declared, but in the meantime the Emperor, influenced by others as well as by motives of his own, had refused the investiture to the new Duke, and ordered him to leave in sequestration the States which had been the subject of contention, promising, after he should have heard both parties, to give it to the one whom he should deem justly entitled to it. The Duke of Nevers would not submit to these conditions. The Duke had high and powerful friends being supported by the Cardinal Richelieu, the Senate of Venice, and the Pope. But the first of these, absorbed at the time by the siege of Rochelle, embarrassed in a war with England, thwarted by the party of the Queen Mother, Mary de' Medici, who, for particular reasons, was hostile to the House of Nevers, could only hold out hopes and promises. The Venetians would not stir in the contest until a French army arrived in Italy, and while secretly aiding the Duke, they confined themselves in their negotiations with the Court of Madrid and the Government of Milan to protests, offers, or even threats, according to the circumstances. Urban VIII recommended the Duke of Nevers to his friends, interceded for him with his adversaries, and made propositions of peace, but he never afforded him any military aid. The two powers, allied for offensive operations, could then securely begin their enterprise carlos Emmanuel entered montferrat and don gonzalo gladly undertook the siege of gazale but he did not meet with the success he had anticipated the court did not afford him all the supplies he demanded his ally on the contrary was too liberal in his aid to the cause for after having taken his own portion he also took that which had been assigned to the king of spain don gonzalo inexpressibly enraged but fearing if he made the least complaint that carlos as active in intrigue and as brave in arms as he was fickle in disposition and false to his promises would throw himself on the side of france was constrained to shut his eyes to champ the bit and to maintain a satisfied appearance whether from the firm resistance of the besieged or from the small number of troops employed against them or according to some statements from the numerous mistakes of don gonzalo the siege, although protracted, was finally unsuccessful. It was at this very period that the sedition of Milan obliged Don Gonzalo to go thither in person. In the relation that was there made to him, the flight of Renzo was mentioned, and the facts, real or supposed, which had caused his arrest. He was also informed that this man had taken refuge in the territory of Bergamo. This latter circumstance attracted the attention of Don Gonzalo. He knew that the Venetians had taken an interest in the insurrection of Milan, and that in the beginning of it they had imagined that on that account alone he would be obliged to raise the siege of Casale and thus incur a heavy disappointment to his hopes. In addition to this, immediately after this event, the news was received, so much desired by the senate and so much dreaded by Gonzalo, of the surrender of Rochelle. Stung to the quick, as a man and a politician, and vexed at his loss of reputation, he sought out every occasion to convince the Venetians that he had lost none of his former boldness and determination. He therefore ventured to make loud complaints of the conduct of the Senate. The resident of Venice, having come to pay his respects to him, and endeavouring to read in his features and deportment what was passing in his mind, Don Gonzalo spoke lightly of the tumult, as a thing already quieted, making use, however, of the reception of Renzo in the Bergamascan territory, as a pretext for complaint against the Venetians. The result is known to our readers. When he had answered his own purposes with the affair, it was entirely forgotten by him. But Renzo, who was far from suspecting the little importance that was in reality attached to him, had for a long time no other thought but to keep himself concealed. It may well be supposed that he desired ardently to send intelligence to Lucy and her mother, and to hear from them in return. But to this there were two very great obstacles. It was necessary to confide in an amanuensis, as he himself was enabled to write, an accomplishment in those days not very usual in his class. And how could he venture to do this, where all were strangers to him? The other difficulty was to find a trusty messenger to take charge of the letter. He finally succeeded in overcoming these difficulties, and found one of his companions who could write for him. But not knowing whether Lucy or Agnes were still at Monza, he thought it best to enclose the letter under cover to Father Christopher, with a few lines in addition to him. The writer engaged to send it, and gave it to a man who was to pass near Pescarenico, and who left it in an inn on the route, in a neighboring place to the convent, and with many injunctions for its safe delivery. As the cover was directed to a capuchin, it was carried to Pescarenico, but it was never known what farther became of it. Renzo, not receiving an answer, caused another letter to be written, and enclosed it to one of his relations at Lecco. This time the letter reached its destination. Agnes requested her cousin Alessio to read it for her, and to write an answer, which was sent to Antonio Rivolta at the place of his abode. All this, however, was not done so quickly as we tell it. Renzo received the answer and wrote a reply. In short, there was a correspondence, however irregular, established between them but the manner of carrying on such a correspondence, which is the same, perhaps, at this day, we will explain. The absent party who can't write selects one who possesses the art from amongst his own class, and which he can more securely trust. To him he explains with more or less clearness his subject and his thoughts. The man of letters comprehends part, guesses the rest, gives an opinion, proposes an alteration, and finishes with, leave it to me. Then begins the translation of the spoken into the written thoughts. The writer corrects, improves, overcharges, diminishes, or even omits, according to his opinion of the graces of style. The finished letter is, accordingly, often wide of the mark aimed at. But when at length it reaches the hands of a correspondent, equally deficient in the art of reading running hand, he is under the like necessity of finding a learned clerk of the same calibre to interpret the hieroglyphics. Hereupon arise questions upon the various meanings. Towards their elucidation, the one supplies philological notices upon the text, the other commentaries upon the hidden matter so that after mature discussion they may come to the same understanding between themselves however remote that may be from the intention of the originator of the perplexity this was precisely the condition of our two correspondents the first letter from renzo contained many details he informed agnes of the circumstance of his flight his subsequent adventures and his actual situation these events however were rather hinted at than clearly explained so that agnes and her interpreter were far from drawing any definite conclusions from the relation of them he spoke of secret information, of a change of name, that he was in safety, but that he was obliged to keep himself concealed. Further, the letter contained pressing and passionate inquiries with regard to Lucy, with some obscure references to the reports which had reached him, mingled with vague expressions of hope, and plans for the future, and affectionate exhortations to constancy and patience. Some time after the receipt of this letter, Agnes sent Renzo an answer, with the fifty crowns that had been assigned him by Lucy. At the sight of so much gold, he did not know what to think and with his mind agitated by reflections by no means agreeable, he went in search of his amanuensis, requesting him to interpret the letter, and afford him a clue to the development of the mystery. The amanuensis of Agnes, after some complaints on the want of clearness in Renzo's epistle, described the wonderful history of this person, so he called the unknown, and thus accounted for the fifty crowns. Then he mentioned the vow, but only periphrastically, adding more explicitly the advice to set his heart at rest, and not to think of Lucy any more. Renzo was very near quarrelling with his interpreter. He trembled, he was enraged with what he had understood, and with what he had not understood. He made him read three or four times this melancholy epistle, sometimes understanding it better, sometimes finding obscure and inexplicable that which at first had appeared clear. In the delirium of his passion, he desired his amanuensis to write an answer immediately. After the strongest expressions of pity and horror at the misfortunes of Lucy,
1: "'Write,' pursued he, "'that I do not wish to set my heart at rest.' and that i never will that this is not advice to give me and that moreover i will never touch the money but will keep it in trust as the dowry of a young girl that lucy belongs to me and that i will not abide by her vow that i have always heard that the virgin interests herself in our affairs for the purpose of aiding the afflicted and obtaining favour for them but that I have never heard that she will protect those who do evil, and fail to perform their promises. Say that as such cannot be the case, her vow is good for nothing, that with this money we can establish ourselves here, and that if our affairs are now a little perplexed, it is a storm which will soon pass away.
0: Agnes received this letter, sent an answer, and the correspondence continued for some time as we have related. When her mother informed Lucy that Renzo was well and in safety, she derived great relief from the intelligence, desiring but one thing more, which was that he should forget, or rather, that he should endeavour to forget her. On her part, she made a similar resolution with respect to him, a hundred times a day, and employing every means of which she was mistress to accomplish so desirable an end, she applied herself incessantly to labour, endeavouring to give to it all the powers of her soul. When the image of Renzo occurred to her mind, she tried to banish it by prayer, but while thinking of her mother and how could she avoid thinking of her mother the image of renzo intruded himself as a third into the place so often occupied by the real renzo however if she did not succeed in forgetting she contrived at least to think less frequently of him and in this she would have been more successful had she been left to prosecute the work alone but alas donna Prasede, who on her part was determined to drive the poor youth from her mind thought there was no better expedient for the purpose than to talk of him incessantly well said she "'Do you still think of him?' "'I think of no one,' said Lucy. "'Donna Prasede, who was not a woman to be satisfied with such an answer, replied, "'That you wanted actions, not words.' "'Discussing at length the tendencies of young girls, she said, "'When they once given their heart to libertine, "'it is impossible to redraw their affections. "'If their love for an honest man is, by whatever means, unfortunate, "'they are soon comforted. "'But love for libertine is an incurable wound.' And then, beginning the panegyric of poor Renzo, of this rascal who wished to deluge Milan in blood and reduce it to ashes, she concluded by insisting that Lucy should confess the crimes of which he had been guilty in his own country. Lucy, with a voice trembling from shame, grief, and from as much indignation as her gentle disposition and humble station permitted her, declared and protested that in her village this poor youth had always acted peaceably and honourably, and had obtained a good reputation. "'She wished,' she said." that one of his countrymen were present to bear testimony to the truth. Even respecting the events at Milan, of which, twas true, she knew not the details, she defended him, and solely on the account of the acquaintance she had had with his habits from infancy. She defended him, or rather she meant to defend him, from the pure duty of charity, from love of truth, and as being her neighbour. But Donna Pracere deduced from this defence new arguments to convince Lucy that this man still held a place in her heart, of which he was not worthy at the degrading portrait which the old lady drew of him the habitual feelings of her heart with regard to him and her knowledge and estimate of his character revived with double force and distinctness her recollections which she had had so much difficulty in subduing returned vividly to her imagination in proportion to the aversion and contempt manifested by Dona Prasere towards the unfortunate youth just in such proportion did she recall her former motives for esteem and sympathy this blind and violent hatred excited in her heart stronger pity and tenderness such conversations could not be much prolonged without resolving Lucy's words into tears. If Dona Prasere had been led to this course of conduct by hatred towards Lucy, the tears of the latter, which flowed freely during these examinations, might have subdued her to silence. But as she was moved to speak by the desire of doing good, she never suffered herself to be softened by them, for groans and supplications may arrest the arm of an enemy, but not the friendly lance of the surgeon." After having reproached her for her wickedness, she passed to exhortations and advice, mingling also a few praises, to temper the bitter with the sweet, and obtain more certainly the effect she desired. These disputes, which had nearly the same beginning, middle, and end, did not, however, leave any trace of resentment against her severe lecturer in the gentle bosom of Lucy. She was, in other respects, treated with much kindness by the lady, and she believed her, even in this matter, to be guided by good, though mistaken, intentions. There did follow them, however, such agitation, such uneasy awakening of slumbering thoughts, that much time and effort were requisite to restore her to any degree of tranquillity. It was a happiness for Lucy that Dona Prasede's sphere of usefulness was somewhat extensive. Consequently, these tiresome conversations could not be so frequently repeated. Besides her immediate household, composed, according to her opinion, of persons that had more or less need of correction and regulation, and besides all the other occasions which presented themselves for her rendering the same office from pure benevolence to persons who required not the duty at her hands. She had five daughters, neither of whom lived at home. But they gave her the more trouble from that very cause. Three were nuns, and two were married. Dona Prasera consequently had three monasteries and two families to govern, a vast and complicated machinery, and the more troublesome, as two husbands, supported by a numerous kindred, three abbesses, defended by other dignitaries and a great number of nuns would not accept her superintendence there was a continual warfare polite indeed but active and vigilant a perpetual attention to avoid her solicitude to close up the avenues to her advice to elude her inquiries and to keep her in as much ignorance as possible of their affairs in her own family however her zeal could display itself freely all were governed by her authority and submissive to her in every respect with the exception of don Ferrante. With him things were conducted in a peculiar manner. A man of study he neither loved to obey nor command. He was perfectly willing that his wife should be mistress in all things pertaining to household affairs, but not that he should be her slave. And if, at her request, he lent upon occasion the services of his pen, it was because he had a particular taste for such employments, and, moreover, he could refuse to do it when not convinced of the propriety of her demand. "'Well,' he would say, "'do it yourself,' since the matter appears so plain to you. Dona Prasede, after vainly trying to induce him to submission, took refuge in grumbling against him as an original, a man who would have his own way, a mere scholar, which latter title, however, she never gave him without a degree of complacency, mingling itself with her displeasure. Don Ferrante passed much time in his study, where he had a considerable collection of choice books. He had selected the most famous works on many different subjects, in each of which he was more or less versed, in astrology he was justly considered more than an amateur because he not only possessed the general notions and the common vocabulary of influences aspects and conjunctions but he could speak to the point and like a professor of the twelve houses of heaven of the great and lesser circles of degrees lucid and obscure of exaltations, passages and revolutions in short of the principles the most certain and most recondite of the science for more than twenty years in long and frequent disputes he had sustained the preeminence of Cardan against another learned man, attached to the system of Alcabizio. "'From pure obstinacy,' said Don Ferrante, who, in acknowledging voluntarily the superiority of the ancients, could not, however, endure the prejudice which would never accord to the moderns even that which they evidently deserved. He had also a more than ordinary acquaintance with the history of the science.' he could cite the most celebrated predictions which had been verified, and reason very skilfully and learnedly on other celebrated predictions which had not been verified, demonstrating that the failure was not owing to any deficiency in the science, but to the ignorance which could not apply its principles. He had acquired as much ancient philosophy as would have contented a man of ordinary ambition, but he was continually adding to his stock from the study of Diogenes Laertius. However, as we cannot adhere to every system, and as from among them all, a choice is necessary to him who desires the reputation of a philosopher don ferrante made choice of aristotle who as he was accustomed to say was neither ancient nor modern he possessed many works of the wisest and most subtle disciples of the school of aristotle among the moderns as to those of his opponents he would not read them because it would be a waste of time he said nor buy them because it would be a waste of money in the judgment of the learned therefore don ferrante passed for an accomplished peripatetic although this was not the judgment he passed on himself for more than once he was heard to declare with singular modesty that the essence the universals the soul of the world and the nature of things were not matters so clear as people thought as to natural philosophy he made it more a pastime than a study he had rather read than digested the works of aristotle himself on the subject nevertheless with a slight acquaintance with that author and the knowledge he had incidentally gathered from other treatises of general philosophy, he could, when necessary, entertain an assembly of learned persons in reasoning most acutely on the wonderful virtues and singular characteristics of many plants. He could describe exactly the forms and habits of the sirens, and the phoenix, the only one of its kind. He could explain how it was that the salamander lived in fire, how drops of dew became pearls in the shell, how the chameleon lived on air, and a thousand other secrets of the same nature— he was, however, much more addicted to the study of magic and sorcery, as this was a science more in vogue, and withal more serviceable, and the facts of which were of pre-eminent importance. It is not necessary to add that, in devotion to such a science, he had no other purpose than to obtain an accurate knowledge of the worst artifices of the sorcerers, in order to guard himself against them. Guided by the great Martino del Rio, he was able to discourse ex-professo on the enchantment of love the enchantment of sleep the enchantment of hatred and on the innumerable species of these three chief enchantments which alas are witnessed every day in their destructive and baneful effects his knowledge of history especially universal history was not less vast and solid but said he often what is history without politics a guide who conducts without teaching any one the way as politics without history is a man without a guide to conduct him here was then a small place on his shelf, assigned to statistics. There, among others of the second rank, were seen Bowden, Cavalcanti, Sansovino, Paruta, and Boccalini. There were, however, two books that Don Ferrante preferred to all others on the subject, two which he called for a long time the first of the kind, without deciding to which of the two this rank exclusively belonged. One was Il Principe, and the Discorsi, of the celebrated secretary of Florence. "'A rascal, tis true.' said he but profound the other la ragion di stato of the not less celebrated giovanni botero an honest man tis true said he but cunning but a short time before the period to which our history belongs a work appeared which had terminated the question of pre-eminence a work in which was comprised and condensed a relation of every vice in order to enable men to avoid it and every virtue in order to enable men to practise it a book of few leaves indeed but all of gold in a word, the Statissa Regnante of Don Valeriano Castiglione, of the celebrated man, upon whom the most learned men emulated each other in bestowing praises, and for whose notice the greatest personages contended, whom Pope Urban Eighth honoured with a magnificent eulogium, whom Cardinal Borghese and the Viceroy of Naples, Don Pietro de Toledo, solicited to write, the first, the life of Pope Paul V, the second, the wars of the Catholic King in Italy, and both in vain, whom Louis the Thirteenth, King of France, with the advice of Cardinal Richelieu, named his historiographer, upon whom the Duke Carlos Emmanuel of Savoy conferred the same office, and in praise of whom the Duchess Cristina, daughter to His Most Christian Majesty Henry the Fourth, added in a diploma, after many other titles, the renown he had obtained in Italy as the first writer of the age. But if Don Ferrante might be said to be well versed in all the above sciences, there was one in which he deserved and really obtained the title of professor the science of chivalry. He not only spoke of it as a master, but was often requested to interfere in nice points of honour and give his decision. He had in his library, and, we may add, in his head also, the works of the most esteemed writers on the subject, particularly Torquato Tasso, whom he had always ready, and he could, if required, cite from memory all the passages of the Jerusalem delivered, which might be brought forward as authority in these matters. We might speak more at large of this learned man, but we feel it to be time to resume the thread of our history. Nothing of importance occurred to any of the personages of our story before the following autumn, when Agnes and Lucy expected to meet again, but a great public event disappointed this hope. Other events followed, which produced no material change in their destiny. Then occurred new misfortunes, powerful and overwhelming, coming upon them like a hurricane, which impetuously tears up and scatters every object in its way, sweeping the land, and bearing off with its irresistible and mighty power every vestige of peace and prosperity that the particular facts which remain to be related may not appear obscure, we must recur for a while to the farther recital of general facts. End of chapter 27